0: Four,
1: three, two, one. Lift off Hi, I'm Mark Boucher. As I'm on travel this week, we're presenting a future in space operations talk by Gary Kalman, the founder and CEO of Cislunar Industries. As we prepare to head back to the moon, this time hopefully to stay, we'll need to continue to build up our commercial efforts in low Earth orbit. For Cislunar Industries, that means making the business case for recycling space debris for in-space metal manufacturing. Listen in.
0: So now, Gary, the microphone is yours. Take it away.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. I'm happy happy to be here. here.
2: And we're very excited about the traction we've been getting, uh, we're now starting to get, and, and the progress we've made, especially over the last year. Uh, I'm particularly excited to announce to this audience, and maybe some of you even already know this, um, that, that we, we won our uh, NASA Phase Two SBIR uh, recently announced uh, just like a week and a half ago. So um, we're excited to be carrying the idea forward with NASA's help, um, and it just adds another validation for that we're on the right track here and so that that's that's the uh the lead in. If you guys are looking at this uh the deck it, on PDF on your screen, I did add some um bookmarks mark on the side so it sort of helps to organize the flow a little bit. Uh if you want to keep that open just to see where we where we're headed. I'll just go over real quick right now to give you some some, you know, context. We have we're going to go over the problem and the opportunity that we see, uh our solution, why we think now is the time to be doing this, um how it will work the economics and the business model around it, and progress that we've made to date, uh, some of our next steps. I do have a link for a short version of the video that we so – the same one we showed at the OSAM conference. It's a nice little summary of, uh, of a live demonstration that we did back in uh, October. And then uh, a little bit about our team and some final thoughts um, and just a summary of, of what we're you working know, on in the q So that's, that's the plan. I'll dive right in. So going on to slide two, which is really just a placeholder slide, we'll skip to slide three. So um, the way we look at this, and what's inspired this company and the idea behind it, is that we believe the next industrial revolution um, is really already beginning, and it's happening in space. And we're starting to see uh, this emerging all across the the value chain for um, you know an industrial in space economy, not just one that serves People on Earth, but one that has eventually will have space-to-space economy, um, and and it's our you know foundational belief that this is uh, this will be the foundation of a sustainable human presence beyond Earth, and you know from my personal perspective, and and those of my founders I know agree with me, um, you know I, I have a a, a belief as sort of my why of being involved in this that um, this is our best way to have a expansive Abundant and prosperous future as as a uh, you know as the human race. I think um, you know the going out into the cosmos and and expanding human presence beyond Earth is you know the optimistic uh, way of looking at the future and you know that's the way I want to I want to <laughs> see things unfold. Uh, and of course, I have my own self interest of wanting to go to space someday. And you know the more we can do to bring the costs down to make that accessible to uh, to everyone, um, the more likely we are to be able to make that happen. So. Uh, that's kind of the foundation there. When we look at the, uh, skipping on to slide four, um, when we look to uh, the this industrial economy that we see unfolding, uh, just as has been the case on Earth, you know, metal materials will be critical in uh, the next industrial revolution in space. And as you all know, uh, you know, metal resources are certainly abundant uh, on the Moon in asteroids. Throughout the solar system, and you know, as well now um, in, in orbit around the Earth, in the form of space debris and uh, you know other other objects. So those are there, but they must be processed to be useful. Slide five, slide five. Uh, the one challenge that sort of is is building as we build out this uh, space economy, of course, is this the problem of space debris. So this is in the context of, while we've got this industrial revolution happening. At the same time, we've got the space debris problem growing and growing at an exponential rate. Um, And, you know, sustainable solutions are urgently needed. Um, As you sort of heard in our bio, we think that, uh, you know, we we need something that's a bit grander and a bit more uh, revolutionary to really tackle this problem in a scalable way. Um, So we, we need to find those solutions. In addition, if you skip the slide, you'll go to slide six now. You'll see uh, some charts that McKinsey put out last fall, um, which I thought were a pretty good representation of the situation, really showing the exponential growth of satellites on orbit, um, and then the plans of taking that, you know, orders of magnitude further as we move into the next uh, decade or more with uh, all the mega constellations that are currently on deck. And I've seen estimates there are even more than 70,000. But, um, you know, some of these will work, some of them won't, but there's no doubt about it that the the number of satellites in orbit are are slated to grow, you know, by an order of magnitude I would say. And as that happens, the er, the need for this um solutions to space debris and, you know, end of life uh removal are growing even more and it also sets up an ongoing and steady supply of raw materials um that could feed into a recycling kind of framework uh that that we we think we can set up. So there's two sides to that 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 um make this Work pretty well. Slide seven. Okay, so now we're going to jump into the the solution to the problem that we are trying to pursue at their Industries. So, go to slide eight. So, our vision, and this is kind of a repeat, a little bit of what Dallas already said, but our vision is is twofold: it's to revolutionize the economics of space debris removal by using it as a resource. And to then, once we've set up that capability, to be able to process um, and provide critical metal materials to meet the needs of our customers pretty much anywhere in space. I mean, this is what supports that the vision we have for, you know, expanding humanity beyond Earth, as I mentioned earlier. Um, this work for, the, for space degree is really setting the foundation for our, our main objective, which is to be the metal processing company. For this industrial economy that's emerging in space so that's that's our vision uh, to to start to tackle this problem the way we're going to do it is with a system we're calling the microspace foundry and this allows us to both recycle space debris and make metal materials in space and the basic setup for this idea is that it will be small modular scalable and as you heard earlier a distributed metal processing system um, we're focusing on aluminum to start with because it's a bit easier to work with, and we know there's a lot of it up there., uh, but the idea is that it can eventually use a variety of metal feedstocks um, that can be recycled on orbit and eventually can be sourced from you know the lunar surface uh, from asteroids, or even you know it might if there there are some um, circumstances where it might make sense to launch both materials up from Earth, which we can then um, produce very large structures from that. It couldn't be launched uh, due to size constraints and um, and the, the goal of this system is to do to produce two things one is metal propellants which fits into the whole ecosystem in the way that this structure works um, and then all the other industrial uh, products form factors that you could imagine and whatever the, the, the market will demand um, that, that could help support a manufacturing system uh, in space so wire uh, for 3D printing or other purposes, um, sheet metal rods, tubes, etc., all those sorts of form factors that you see from steel mills and aluminum smelters, we uh, we want to produce on orbit. And the goal is to be platform agnostic, so it could go on any platform. Um, it could be on a space station, and it could be added together multiples to have a higher throughput on a space station. It could also be on a spacecraft um, individually, or on a rover or lunar base, really anywhere where the, the power is available to do the processing here's slide 10. Um, modular design, so the, the, the way we're trying to this is with uh, a modular design. This allows us to approach it with a lower cost um, and to sort of have a standardized system that can be mass-produced at, at least, you know, at a, mass-produced in the, in the sense of the kind of quantities you have for space stuff. Um, so the idea is that we have a core central processing unit. This is, this is the core of our microspace boundary um, this is meant to be you know only fifty centimeters by 10 by ten. so it's relatively small. Um, it will use a peak power of around one kilowatt, and we've you know estimated that that can produce um, at least one and a half kilograms per hour, which comes out to around thirteen tons per year per unit. Obviously, this is tiny compared to you know metal production on earth, but in the context of space um, and the ability to add these together to scale it up, um you know this is quite a lot for not too much power. Uh, below this this top item, you see a number a couple of our ideas for different modules that will go on the end to produce different products. So we have you know a rod maker which would produce the metal propellant, um, as well as just rods in general, um, a tube maker, wire maker, and there's a couple other ones that we've got in mind. But this is a sampling of those. Things. We move to slide 11. Um, what this enables us to do, and this slide is a very detailed, and we don't need to go into all the details here, uh, you know, for time's sake. But what I want to show this is uh, for, because this this came out of the State of the Space Industrial Base report, and when we look at this chart, we thought, wow, we could actually impact a lot of areas across this whole you know, scope of um, where you know, ISRU and, and OSAM work can can make an impact. And, uh, and, and it's just that one device, that one capability of processing metal and recycling space debris can produce a lot of different capabilities that can impact across the whole economy. And so those are listed on the right. And since you all have the slides, you can kind of look at that later if you're curious to dig in a bit. Or we can ask questions as well, of course. Um, so let's move on to slide 12. So that moves us to why now? Why is this the time to do it? Aside from the fact that space debris is – you know, becoming increasingly uh, urgent thing to tackle. And as of yet, all the solutions that have been proposed are, you know, expensive, you know, kind of one-off, one or two of these that would be be done. Um, You know, there's other aspects that that support why now. if you go to slide 13, one of the key things is that we are seeing this ecosystem emerge that can actually enable this to work. Um, When we first came up with this idea, This was not the case. In 2017, when when we were forming this idea out of uh, our time at the Space University, um, we we thought we were going to have to build our own platform. We might even have to build our own space tubs to go get the stuff. Um, We might even have to find a way to use our materials in the beginning to try to create uh, a purpose for them. Um, But now we're seeing a whole economy emerging, and not just in theory. I mean, these are companies that are funded, that are building hardware, and some of them have already tested it in orbit. And it crosses the whole spectrum from, you know, Newman Space, which has the metal-based propulsion system that we we use. We partner very closely with them. They're out of Australia, Um, you know, to the the space stations concepts that are popping up, to the lunar aspects that are popping up with commercial companies. Um, On the other side, you've got the satellite servicing, you know, companies that are popping in. And, of course, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are many, many other companies beyond these that are out there as well in all of these verticals. Um, And, of course, with the government support we have this you know, sort of strip at the bottom of this chart it shows uh, many of the government agencies uh, that we have you know some that we've worked with in the past already and currently um that are you know increasing funding to go towards this so having all this that ecosystem actually emerging with technologies that are going to be sealed in on a commercial basis we think many of them by the middle of this decade um, makes this a perfect time for us to launch this because so our, our system by itself can't do anything. We need these other players uh, to, to be able to make it happen. The other aspect is private investment is rapidly increasing in the space sector. And in addition to that, it's not just increasing, but we're seeing exit opportunities for investors, which will add even more fuel to the increase of investment. Um, so that that's happening, and those exits really just started happening in the last couple of years, at least in, in, in any significant fashion. <clears throat> um, in addition, if you go to slide 15, I'm sorry, I don't know if I mentioned the slide last Go uh, to slide 15. I have a chart of all the companies or of, of the different pieces of the value chain that we're trying to address uh, with with our system. And so this is you know take not not the whole space market, which includes you know satellites, uh, uh, earth observation, and all that other stuff, but just the the value chain for commodities in space. And across there, we pick out a sampling of companies that are, you know, key uh, players in this area, and we're seeing a lot of funding going into that stuff. Um, So, you know, not only is funding going into space, but it's even going into this part of of the space. There's funding coming in. And then, of course, the last piece of it, and a crucial piece in the beginning especially, is government support. Obviously, everyone is fully aware of the new space uh, race that's emerged and Really, the events of the last, you know, uh, week and a half have really put an exclamation point on the on the uh, the need for the for us to make sure that we get there um, and and you know have uh, win this race. But but um, the fact that we're having this new geopolitical competition is definitely focusing uh, the mind of Congress and and administrations to keep the the target the same across uh, administrations and. Um, we're seeing a lot of increased funding that goes that's going into to support this, so that's just driving more investment, especially for the early part of maturing this technology uh, so it is ready for commercial prime time. And I have a couple other slides here. If you go to slide 17, uh, I have I pulled this slide from the the, the same report uh, with the state of the space industrial base. It's a nice overview of of, NASA's view for the OSAM group of the Space Superhighway, and we sort of see how we can enable various aspects of this. I love this because it just kind of sets up some of the the goals for how we want to move forward. Um, You go to slide 18. You see the same thing from from the DoD and from the Space Force. In this case, I'm showing the SpaceWorks Orbital Prime solicitation, which recently just closed its first uh, piece. We, We submitted two proposals to that as a company. Um but what's really interesting about this is that they specifically highlighted recycling as a way to deal with um with with space sustainability and, and also that they decided to make space debris removal a focus for um, like catalyzing and accelerating the OSAM market, which we also think is like that's kind of our, our position is that that's how how it would um how we can accelerate things. So that, that it's all lining up really nicely to to support the approach that we're taking. Okay, so now we get into the, the fun stuff. How will it actually work? So um, that's slide 19. If you go to slide 20, um, we have a couple different configurations of this. So one of them is, sort of this sort of builds up from the most simplest, I guess, in a way, uh, to, to more involved uh, with multiple players. So one way to do this is to put a microspace boundary on the debris removal spacecraft. Uh, In fact, one of our proposals to Orbital Prime is kind of focused around this concept. Hmm. And what that would allow you to do, you would have this microspace foundry attached to the spacecraft. It would also have a Newman thruster um, that can utilize the propellant rods that we can create from that that space foundry. And then you would have uh, robotic equipment that can harvest a portion of the material from the piece of debris that you want to remove. Um, So in this case, you enable a debris removal spacecraft to uh, refuel itself from the from the debris that it's capturing. And the way that works is you cut the metal off the debris after you rendezvous with it, um, that gets fed into the foundry, you turn it into power rods, and it refuels the spacecraft. We've estimated that, uh, and I, I guess I'll go to the next slide, which is slide 21, which kind of shows the con ops for this sort of thing. Um, but we've estimated that you can, with just around 10% or less of the mass turned into propellant rods Uh, you could deorbit really any object from from any altitude in leo uh, and and bring it down to a a deorbiting you know altitude of say 200 kilometers and then go back and get the next one and with this sort of process we look at all the old um, trans stages that are up in in a sun synchronous orbit uh, you know from like the 60s and 70s and there's around 22 or so of those up there um, and just doing some basic calculations around that, we, we've estimated that we could, with just one spacecraft, um, you could take out, you know, four to five of those every year uh, if you had around, uh, like, 15 kilowatts of, of power um, supplying the, the propulsion system. So that, you know, obviously power and directly relates to how long it takes. But But that gives you an idea of what's possible. Of course, if you had more of them, then you could do it even faster. So this is one way to enable an ADR spacecraft to basically just go around, harvest some material from each piece of debris, refuel itself and just keep deorbiting objects. Um, That's if we want to deorbit. The next level of this that we we really are more keen on and the the part that enables this future economy is um, the, if you go to slide 22, you can see uh, the architecture for the recycling concept. And so, you know, on the left, I have sort of different orbits where we could exist, which is pretty much everywhere. Um, but you know, on the right, I show how this system would work. So we would have a partner-owned platform, and one of the companies that we, we work with quite a lot, Nanoracks, has a good idea around their Outpost program, where, and their mission extension kits that would work perfectly for this. Um, we could that kind of system could host uh, a bunch of microspace boundaries. Um, we would partner with another company that has uh, that has the ADR spacecraft or the Degree Real spacecraft. They would go out and retrieve the objects, uh, bring them back to the platform, which probably will require less propellant than deorbiting. Um, and and then we can refuel them from a portion of that material, um, you know, that's turned into propellant rods. The same propellant rods can also be used to, for station keeping on that platform or for changing its orbit if we want to move to another location. Um, and then the remainder can be used for uh, manufacturing either on that platform, kind of down the line, or it could be delivered to another Location Um, and again, the transportation would not be done by system or industry. We're just focused only on the the processing, and we're going to partner with other other companies to do the other pieces of the puzzle. So that's that's where we see this really taking off, Um, and that's what enables us to transform space debris into a resource that can then catalyze the rest of the OCM market. Go to slide 23. Okay, so now I'm going to jump into the economics and the business model of uh, of this idea slide 24 so um, just looking this is one of the early assessments we did uh we looked at you know initially thinking upper stages are the easiest things to target for recycling um just because they're more metal and more sort of uniform in in their in their composition um and you know we know from other research that uh if we could just take out a bunch of you know some of the larger upper stages it would make a significant impact on the risk level for you know um some of the catastrophic scenarios for space degree. But if you look at how, how much that's worth, uh, we, we kind of just did some assessment updated with the recent numbers. And in LEO, we show there's around 1.3 million kilograms of upper stages, or around across around 900 stages, applying at $1,000 per kilogram, $5,000 per kilogram price range for this, um, you know, we get a $1 to $5 billion valuation. So There's a lot of material up there, it could potentially be worth a lot of money, um, just as a resource base, the raw material, you know, comparing to the cost of launching a similar resource from Earth. Obviously in GEO you have a higher price point, a little bit less material, uh, but you still get in, in a significant uh, range of value for that four to six billion. If we go to the next slide, uh, slide 25, I show sort of the economics of one of our units and how it, it translates into revenue over the course of a year. Um, with a single microspace boundary at one kilowatt of peak power, weighing in at less than 100 kilograms or so, we think we can make one and a half kilograms of production per hour per unit. Um, we have sort of a standardized rod, but that's, that, that, could, that standard may change, of course, as we as go to the actual market. And then, of course, you have a certain, only you know, half the time could you possibly utilize it because you're going to be in the shadow for part of that. Um, and then if we apply that five to one thousand dollar per kilogram um, r- price range, we get to thirty two, somewhere between six and a half and thirty two million dollars of potential revenue for the materials per year for each unit. So there's a lot of potential here, uh, and these are relatively small units. They're designed to be relatively inexpensive, so we think the you know the the economics work there. The business model for this, I won't dive into all the details around this. This is on page on uh, slide twenty six. But the business model of you know doing the removal and recycling of space debris and and making this into a, a profitable business case, um, you know, could work like this. One way, the way that we think is the best way for a company, from our perspective, is for Sistler in Industries to create the relationships with the companies that are having satellites, you know, that are reaching end of life, like say the constellation providers, um, as well as uh, acquire space from from the platform companies and sell the materials downstream to the customers who can use them for manufacturing. In that sort of scenario, um, we have the relationships on the the very front end of the business model and on the back end, and then we contract out to companies that can do the transportation for us um, in a competitive bidding process, as there are a number of companies working on this. This is uh, to our advantage to do it that way. Um, And then we also, of course, rent space from platform companies that are in the right location for us to host this capability. Uh, this is not that different from how, you know, a recycling company might operate on Earth, uh, you know, from the same surface. But the business model could be anything from that, which is sort of we, we kind of cover the whole customer experience across the whole value chain, um, to where we just provide processing as a service. You know, we're hosted on a platform, and say a company like, uh, like KMI or Astroscale or somebody who's going out and grabbing space debris, um, they want to own that material after it's been processed and sell it to someone else. They could bring it to us, pay us to process it, and then you know take the material after it's been processed, and they handle the rest of it. So that's sort of the more simplified version of it. And there's a lot of variations in between there. If we go to slide 27, um, this is where it kind of gets really interesting. And this is where it kind of becomes sort of a massive uh, change in perspective. Uh, so we did a case study on – SpaceX Starlink constellation. It's not something that we've necessarily discussed with SpaceX yet, but um, but this was just kind of a, looking at it as an opportunity, right? So as you know, the you know spaceX is is licensed to launch twelve thousand satellites. Um, they, they've said they want to do up to forty two thousand. Um, they've launched over two thousand so far. They have a five year lifespan, which means that twenty percent of that constellation is being deorbited every year on average. Um, If you're doing that, you've got 2,400 satellites turning over per year. And, you know, we estimated based on sort of around a 30% of that mass being uh, aluminum, um, that that would be around 200,000 kilograms of aluminum deorbited every year. And if you take 200,000 kilograms of aluminum and process it into all those products that I mentioned at the beginning, it's quite a lot of material. I mean, if you, just to put it in perspective, uh, you know, for, if we turn it all into sheet metal, it would be enough sheet metal to wrap all of the habitable modules of the space station five times over every year so that gives you some some sense of you know what that means um but the opportunity here is to recover these these satellites all of them not just some but all of them even the ones that could deorbit orbit themselves um, at end of life recycle them into propeller rods and manufacturing materials potentially salvage the other components like the solar panels antennas batteries etc i mean we, it remains to be seen what of that we can salvage, but perhaps we can and we'd like to try. Um, and then, you know, provide an assured end-of-life removal to SpaceX. And perhaps if we can do that, they can maybe squeeze another year or two out of the satellite because they don't need to reserve propellant for deorbit anymore, which, of course, generates more revenue per satellite. That, gener- that extra revenue could be used to pay for that removal service. Um, and if you do that, excluding those extra services, right, if you just do that, uh, that yields around $200 million to a $1 billion of potential revenue just from the material sales based on those, you know, price points that we mentioned earlier. So looking at that kind of scale of, of production, I mean, to do this, you would need around, in, in this, you know, scenario, you need around 200 debris removal satellites or uh, spacecraft, and you probably need six or seven platforms in different orbits to make this happen. But um, as you start to build the reusable spacecraft at that scale, you know now the price for those spacecraft comes down probably by an order of magnitude as well. So you're getting cost savings on on the production of the of the you know the spacecraft required to do it, and you're getting um, additional life that you can get out of that satellite, and then you're creating revenues that you can uh, use to help accelerate the space economy. Okay, so if I move on to 28. So, now I'll just give you a little update on our progress to date and uh, some of the next steps we see ha- happening. <clears throat> so, going on to, to, to slide 29. So, over the, you know, last year, um, we we spent six months in 2021 on our first NASA Phase One SJR, uh where with a very lean budget, uh, a little bit of investor money, and then the NASA funding, we were able to take our concepts from, you know, just a paper concept and, you know, this <laughs> Awesome maker's garage that our CTO Joe has uh, up at his house in Fort Collins. uh, Converted that into a lab. We were able to do levitation melting, um, you know, in July at that that same location. Took that same system down to Carter School Mines in August um, and did some testing in vacuum. And then we did our live prototype uh, demonstration with Astroscale and uh, Nenorax and Newman Space um, in October. And if we have time, I'll show you some of the video from that. Um, that was where we made a rod in front of the audience and actually showed how it could be used as propellant. So we would like to move fast and be lean and focus on doing stuff. Um, the, yeah. So then that takes us to the to the actual demo itself. So we we did this really cool demo with the with the, this whole value chain of this idea, right? So we had Astroscale presenting what they're working on and showing some you know concept videos of of uh, the tests they've done on orbit for their system. Nanorak uh, shows some of the metal cutting that they're doing, uh, which we can use to do the harvesting potentially. As well as presenting their outpost platform um, and the, the mission extension kit. As I mentioned, we, demo- we demonstrated making a rod. Um, if I go to the next slide, slide 31, it shows kind of a, how the setup worked for this experiment or for this demonstration. You can see um, in the left picture, I can kind of explain what you've got here. You've got uh, a, a, a platform that moves up and down that holds uh, three molds. And on the right, you can kind of see the arrangement. So there's the mold A, B, and C. They're arranged in, on this uh, circular you know, platform. The orange ring there represents the copper coil that's used, the induction melting system there that's used. We had this aluminum ribbon. If you look on the left side, you can see uh, an aluminum ribbon feeding into uh, from the top down. And that's um that's meant to represent you know space debris cut that was uh 6061 aluminum. And and then inside each of these crucibles, these are two or uh, these um what do you call them, these molds, these are two-part molds. Uh you have a basically a rod in the bottom that makes the floor of the mold, and this was both boron nitride, uh machined boron nitride. And we what we did is we had the rod in the bottom. And that's attached to the base, you see it on the left, and it moves up uh, through the, well, it starts at higher and it moves down to allow the the mold to fill as you keep it near the um, the, the, the melting point. So I'll show you how that works in a second here. Let's see, go to slide 32, please. We have this demo screen. Um, So in this view, you have the thermal camera on the upper left corner. Um, You have a top-down view on the upper right. You have our control software that we we custom made on the bottom left, and you have um, a side view on the bottom right. If you go to slide thirty three, okay, so here I have included a link to the demos. So There's a two minute demo. Um, I would suggest to you all to click on that, and I know that it, you know it may not be perfectly synced for uh, me to narrate it, but we'll see. <laughs> um, so if you click on that, it should work. to Take you to YouTube. For those of you who can do that. Um, I just started mine, so I'll kind of talk through it anyway, even though I know it's not perfect. We're, we're showing how, and this is sped up, of course. So there's going to be some melting that happens. You can see the wattage on the bottom left and how it it changes as we're adding power. So this system is operating at higher than that kilowatt. It's around one, you know, sixteen hundred watts or so, um, you know, the, the, for the melting. Uh, but as we've tuned it since this, we've we've been able to increase efficiencies quite a lot. Uh, I think we though. And his, his team have been able to increase the efficiency by three times already. So you know, there's some interesting stuff happening with the new designs. But um, and you can see it getting very hot on the upper left. On the upper right, you can see you know it's already glowing red hot aluminum. So you know we're probably be putting even more heat into this than we need to melt aluminum. Um, and as it goes there, it's it's kind of feeding the ribbon in. This all happened automatically. The the program, software was programmed to detect the speed that the ribbon should be fed in. Um, and then as we move forward here you, you see okay so now we're going to retract the ribbon it's moving on to that that phase uh, and the ribbon pulls back once we're done filling up the the mold and then um we decided to show how we can kind of mix the melt by pulsing and changing the frequency of the electromagnetic fields and you can see it fluttering in there when you look at the at the graphic or the visual uh both in the in the thermal and in the visual one on the upper right <laughs> And then soon here, it will um, it'll, it'll lower down after we do that sort of mixing experiment, kind of show how that's how the EM fields can control that. Now we would rotate position, so we'll lower the stage down. Now it's been filled up with, uh, with material. We'll rotate it around so that the next one, which is empty, can be used to fill up the next one uh, just to make one of these rods. And what we did is we had a finished rod already in the other one, so we could eject it. Um, And so you can see on the upper le- upper right, it's ejecting out of there, and I've got some tongs that I use just to pull it out for in this case. But obviously that would be robotic when we get into the <laughs> yeah. Uh, then they had this cool thing where they showed this part actually has some sound. I'm going to mute mine. It's not getting weird, but um, they had their system set up over in Australia with an audience there, and they had our rod in there, and this is one of their demo versions. They have you know more. Uh, nicely put together versions for production, but you can see the sparks happening, and then they they, they pause here at the end, so you can kind of see that spark of plasma. And it's a uh, arc, it's an arc uh, plasma thruster. That's how that's how it works, but and that's how we turn metal into propulsion. Okay, yeah, I'm gonna turn that off now. All right, cool. So hopefully, you all got to see that video. If we go to slide 34. We've had some interesting press over the last year or so. Um, probably the most fun one recently that, that aired was a uh, CBS video, which aired twice. Uh, there is a version um, from February 6th that's still active. but I think the longer version, they had to take it down because of you know, some, some footage from uh, movies and stuff. But anyway, it was a lot of fun. So we're getting a lot of traction in the press. Uh, if you go to slide 35, you can see our plans going into the future, our roadmap. So we have, as I mentioned, we have won our phase two SBIR. We're in that contracting phase right now. Um, over the next 24 months, we want to take this to a point where we can do a parabolic flight either by the end of this year or maybe at the very you know, near the beginning of next year. But the goal is to do an on-orbit demonstration um, at the end of 2024 or beginning of, or sorry, end of 2023 or beginning of 2024. Um, and we've, we're partnering hopefully with um, with Nanoracks and and you know, maybe Axiom as well to do that uh, potentially through the ISS National Lab, um, where we can you know do that demonstration and not just show that we can um, show that we can make produce these materials in extended microgravity, but but also even show some of the in space economy by transferring some of those materials to other potential customers and doing a transaction where materials that we produce from recycled material are then sold to another customer. Um, on the space station so that 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 could be really interesting that's that's hope, what we're hoping to set up for around the end of 2024 hope to have commercial operations ready to go in, in the middle of you know 2025 time frame and then as we move out you know, there could be some lunar demonstrations for a lunar space foundry and so on uh, but i won't belabor the point on that too much more if we go to slide 36 okay so we've got a great team slide 37 uh just the core co-founder team is myself, Joe Kowalski, Kai Stotts, and Walter Schroeder. Um, we we're adding new people to the team all the time. If you go to slide 38, uh, we've got a huge group of, you know, a huge and growing group of experts, staff, advisors, and consultants. Um, you know, the latest addition to the to the team is, is Lee Sankey, and she's really awesome coming in as to help us with strategy and operations. Um, Steve Ward is, was our first employee that we hired earlier this year. Uh, he helped us on the phase one of it, and he's going to be helping us on phase two and also these orbital prime solicitations if we win those. And, and you can see we've got a wide array of, of experts from across industry and academia helping us. Uh, final thoughts here if you a the slide 40. Uh, I guess the, the last thing I'll leave you with so we can jump to a quick Q&A is that, you know, there's just looping it all back together. We really want to change the dialogue around space debris, um, that this can be our way. To accelerate uh, both solve the space debris problem in a sustainable way that, that helps to, that scales itself because it's it's economically self-sustaining and it's profitable. Um, and in doing so, we we supercharge the whole value chain across um, uh, f- to enable this capability. We can't do space debris recycling by ourselves. We need platforms, we need robotic, uh, space robotics companies, we need uh, transportation, we need com- customers who can use the materials. And so all of those companies will have another reason to accelerate their progress. And if we can start to approach this challenge from a policy perspective uh, that, that looks to create these um, you know, commercially driven solutions for space debris – I think we can solve this problem and turbocharge uh, our, our progress into this, you know, future industrial system or economy that I think probably everyone on this call would love to see emerge the way that we do. Um, and and you know, I think there's other things that the government can certainly do to help in- encourage that. Like for example, um, having sort of a, a policy of building strategic commodities reserves could create an anchor customer that would help pull in all the, the capital needed to build this out. I mean, there's a lot more stuff to talk about there. Happy to address questions in that in that area as well but but this is the one thing I want to leave you guys with we can we can use space debris to solve space debris and and build this sustainable future that we want to see happen beyond earth um, and with that I will open it up for questions
0: Gary hey, Gary that's 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 a great great presentation great vision of the future and uh, I'm going to start with a hard question for you great let her <laughs> Yeah, do you believe that, um, from from your process to a finished product, you can beat the potential dollars per kilogram to orbit of a Starship?
2: Yeah. So that's that, that's a great question, and it's something we certainly think about. Um, yeah. our perspective on that is that Starship, it, you know, of course, as that happens, prices are going to go down. They're not going to go all the way down to a hundred dollars per kilogram right away, right? Right. Um, but, but as we approach that level of pricing, um, the, the activity in space is going to grow so incredibly fast in, in ways that we can't even really predict, right? This is – you know, Michael Lane has this idea, this uh, term of uh, the, the Starship Singularity, and I really think that that captures it well because we don't really know what it's going to be like on the other side of that. I think it's very transformational. But – Right. My point is that uh, we think that we can um, increase volume of sales faster than we decrease our price. So we think we can make it up on volume because of all the increased activity. Even okay. with Starship, you still can't put a kilometer long piece of material inside Starship, right? You have to. So it might make sense to launch a bag of material from Earth um, that we can then process through a continuous casting process into very large structures. Oh, absolutely.
0: Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Uh, anybody else out there with questions? I'm sure there are plenty. Yeah, this is Dan. Um, Gary, that's this is really slick stuff. Thank you very much for telling us about it. I, I did have a question with regard to product manufacturing uh, about reliability assurance. You know, when you're making products, you kind of like them to be space qualified, um and, you know, for example, if you're selling wire, if the wire is going to be used for harnesses, you want some measurement of the strength. Or if it's right. going to be used for electronics, you want conductivity. So are are you just selling this as sort of cot stuff? Or I'm just wondering, is, is this an issue for your business plan? I mean, it's it's certainly
2: something that's been brought up uh, in the past as a potential hurdle to overcome. As I have learned, um, you know, the aerospace industry is is pretty conservative. Uh, most of it is anyway, but uh, probably there are some early adopters that will try it out anyway. And we think that the cost savings, um, especially the further out we go, you know, the more important it becomes to to be able to use the materials you have there, right? Um, so we're going to have to find a way to use materials that are made on Earth that maybe can't be tested quite to the level that we are used to from from uh, on the ones that you can make on Earth. Um, but I also think that you know, there are that every company that's doing in-space manufacturing is going to have to deal with this <laughs> at some level. And uh, I know that there are a number of efforts out there to find ways to, you know, study the quality and do quality assurance. And we'll just build up a reputation as we as we kind of prove a consistency of product that we can make over time. But it's definitely something to to, to address. One of the other things that, that people have brought up with us is. You know, maybe we can't guarantee that the uh, strength is always exactly what people want, but maybe we can, you know, double or triple up in the in the amount that we use to overcome, you know, and create sort of more of a uh, margin for error there. There might be ways to get work around that.
0: Okay, thanks very much. Other questions, please?
3: Garber from NASA Headquarters. Um, I'm sorry to ask a dumb question here, but can you – I'm just looking at the slides. Um, in your how will it work section, like slides 19 through 21 or so. Can you just explain one more time for sort of a layperson? Um, The idea is you have this um, microspace foundry, and then uh, you process uh, debris to to create these propellant rods for the Newman thrusters. So you would sort of, in effect, partner with other companies like Astroscale or whatnot that have ADR satellites um, roving around to pick up um, debris and other – using whatever technologies they want to use to pick up the other debris, whether it's a a net or, you know, electrostatic or this or that.
2: Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So we – and this is definitely something that's important to clarify. We we want to focus on building the processing capability. But we are certainly relying on other partners to develop those other capabilities. I mean, as you know, there are many companies working out now working on um, debris removal or in-space transportation right. solutions. So, yeah, we would partner with one of those. And once we've been able to demonstrate and get some heritage on the Newman's thruster, um, which those guys are doing their first mission, I think, this year, um Then we think that you know it'll present a pretty attractive option uh for for them to be able to achieve this mission.
3: That's it's kind of like a uh i think you used the term platform agnostic at one point, but the idea is that uh um this would provide sort of the manufacturing infrastructure if you will to enable those various a d r technologies that are built by other companies to flourish, is that right?
2: Yeah, exactly. We, 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 that's exactly how, how we hope to position ourselves is to enable other companies to be successful um, and you know, sort of enhance their capabilities uh, in this way. I mean,
0: okay.
2: you know, I, I know that most of these companies, if they don't have a way to refuel, can only get three or four missions or maybe five missions out of uh, an ADR spacecraft. Of course, there are refueling options out there that are emerging like or- what OrbitFab is doing. Um, but you still have to launch that time from Earth, <laughs> and it might not be in the right location. So in this kind of scenario that on slide 20, where it's all on board the ADR spacecraft, um, you know, it's sort of self-sufficient until some of the other parts break down.
3: Okay, thank you.
0: Well, uh, we're after the hour. Gary, thank you very much for your presentation. Audience, thanks for staying with us, and uh, we'll see you in three weeks. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been a lot
1: of fun. Well, that's a wrap on this episode. As always, your feedback is very much appreciated. You can send us a comment or a guest recommendation to podcast at spaceq.ca. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at The Economy Space. And you can also support the podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to us. Until next time.